Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people learn how to build substantial passive income. Today's show is about asset protection. Now that may sound dry to a lot of people, but it's actually a critically important subject matter. But why is asset protection important? What is it? Why do you need it? And how do you achieve it? Actually, I find the subject somewhat confusing, at least I have over the years, but I've spent a lot of time studying the topic and reading books and learning what I can. And what I've learned, unfortunately, not in the beginning, but later on, is that there are two important sides to asset protection. There's the legal side, but then there's the tax side. And a lot of people and subject matter experts really don't pay attention a whole lot to the tax side of the equation. But they're really two sides of the same coin. You can ask 100 people their opinions about this subject and you'll get 100 answers. They're not going to be exactly the same and that part makes it rather confusing. Asset protection is really not a one-size-fits-all subject. It's more about controlling everything but appearing to own nothing. And that is probably the most important thing I learned about the objective of asset protection is control everything but appear to own nothing. So today's guest is someone who I've known for many years. He's a very smart guy, and I wanted to bring him on the show because he really understands this subject, and he understands both sides of the coin, the legal aspect as well as the tax aspect of it. So he spends his time putting together strategic solutions for real estate investors that are looking for asset protection, and it could be something as simple as setting up an entity like an LLC or as complex as someone owning hundreds of units that wants that generational income and wealth to pass on to their heirs. So before we get to that interview, we're going to take a quick 25-second break, and I'll be right back with our guest, Clint Coons. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com guide. Okay, I'd like to welcome Clint Coons to the show. Clint is a successful real estate investor in his own right. He's the manager of Anderson Business Advisors and Law Group. They are a premier provider of asset protection and business planning for real estate investors. Clint, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey, it's my pleasure. I really love your work. I met you many years ago at, I believe, an expo. And, um, you know, you struck a chord with me because... You're uh, an attorney that does asset protection, but you do what I call a holistic form of asset protection, where you look at the legal aspect of it, but at the same time, you bring in the tax questions, the tax implications, the tax-related items, and they fit together. And I think that's really, really important. So I wanted to get you on the show. You know, you talk about those two issues right there, and, and you're right. I mean, that's so important when it comes to real estate investing that you understand both sides of the issue because so many 
local professionals will only assist their clients with, let's say, the asset protection side. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're left to go find a CPA who understands what the attorney's doing. And maybe the attorney doesn't understand what the CPA wants. And so as a result, the client doesn't really have a plan that works for them in their investing. And I saw that relatively early on in, in uh, my career in working with people who need asset protection, real estate investors. And so that's why we built our practice out to look at really both sides. But one other aspect to this that I think is equally important when it comes to investing and looking at this holistic approach is whenever you create a plan, you want to ensure that your plan does not complicate your life or your ability to continue on with your business. I run into so many real estate investors who have these plans that are set up to protect themselves, and maybe they even have the tax component uh, as well tied into it. But I tell them, you know, as a fellow real estate investor, that type of plan is going to give you heartache when you try to go in and obtain conventional financing because the lenders are not going to understand what it is you're doing. So you really need to look at tax. You need to look at asset protection, and you have to look at your business, what you plan to do in the future when you're putting together a plan. Yeah. And, and you mentioned real estate investors several times, and I know you're a real estate investor too. So I'm, I'm curious how you got started in real estate investing. And were you an attorney first, or did you start investing in real estate and then decide that you want to go into law? Yeah, I started investing. Well, I started in real estate when I was two years old because my dad had, <laughs> he wanted indentured servants. And so my brother and I would go out and work for my father on all his properties until I was able to get out from under his wing when he, uh, he quit paying for my college is when I graduated. <laughs> yeah. I remember, you know, when I was, when I was in college, he'd call me up and say, Hey, Clint, we're re-roofing this house today and I expect you there by 6am or you're on your own next year. And so that's where, you know, my background was, uh, in real estate. In fact, you know, there was a time where I thought I might become a contractor before I went to law school. I was a mm-hmm. framer for a year. And so I have this, this background, I've always had an interest in real estate, and it just parlayed into my legal career that, you know, I saw the issues that my father uh, faced as a real estate investor, and what particularly troubled me was that he has, uh, or he had an attorney in the family. His own father was an attorney, and, and my grandfather never once sat down with my dad and explained to him that, you know, you could do things a little more efficiently from a business point of view. Uh-huh. And so my dad just ran his business as a sole proprietor and the way he would handle lawsuits is, you know, you pay to make them go away and you don't have to do that uh, if you're properly structured. Right. Asset protection can be quite confusing. You know, you've got the legal side, the legal protection side, and then you've got the tax side. And over the years, you know, every time I get into a conversation with our clients, our investors about this topic, I, I tell them, you know, you could ask 100 people or 100 attorneys these questions about asset protection, and you'll probably get 100 different answers. They might be close, but they're 100 different variations of the same thing. So I guess a good place to start is to ask the question, you know, what is the liability and the litigation that we're trying to avoid in the first place? Well, you know, you can't predict where liability is going to come from. And a common fallacy that I think runs throughout the legal community when dealing with real estate investors is that insurance is your only option. Or I mean, not your only option, but your best option that you, you know, don't waste the time. You're just going to complicate your life with business entities. And, you know, we have over 17,000 clients throughout this country. And so I've seen firsthand how lawsuits can come out of the blue and devastate people's lives because they didn't anticipate the type of liability that they're now confronting. I mean, 
you know, when we look at real estate in general, I mean, what is one of the areas that has a lot of litigation right now? Toxic mold. Uh, that's where tenants can allege that you have mold in your property, which every house has mold. It's just now that we label it toxic, right. then, yeah, it gives you a reason not to pay rent, sue the landlord for damages. And you may think your insurance is going to cover you, and they won't because that's environmental. So there are things like that. How about if your house burns down? How much insurance do you have? Sometimes people say, well, I have enough insurance. Uh, I'm, I'm insured for $2 million. Well, that may cover your property, mm-hmm. but what about the adjoining property? I had a client, I have a client that uh, owned property in Honolulu, and her house burned down, or actually her tenant burned it down. And she didn't have enough insurance to cover the adjoining property that was severely damaged by the fire on her property. And so she ended up going bankrupt. So... You know, it's looking at situations like that and putting entities in place that prevent one catastrophe from wiping you out. In your fire example, wouldn't the insurance of the neighbor cover their property? They have a claim against you because your property was the cause of the fire. Even though you may not be at fault? That's, oh, you, yeah, you are at fault because it was your tenant that burned your house down. Yeah. With all this clutter, how does an investor begin to cut through it all? Well... The way you cut through all of this is you put together sensible plans that match your style of investing. You know, one of the fallacies I see out there as well is that everybody thinks that the LLC is the only be-all entity for all investors, and it's really not. You have to understand what type of investing you're engaging in and then choose the appropriate entity for it. You know, there's a recent, you talked about taxes. Well, uh, there was a recent case three months ago that was just handed down, and it was two real estate investors out in Illinois. And what they were doing is they set up an LLC, went to attorney, got this LLC set up, and they started buying tax liens and deeds. And when they would get the properties, they would turn around and either sell them uh, right away or fix them up, turn them into rentals. Um, the ones that they were flipping, some of them were sold on installment sales. Uh, some of them were cashed out immediately. Well, they ran their business this way for four years, and then they were audited. And the IRS came in and said, no, no, no. The way you've been accounting for your income and running your business has been completely wrong because they were treating it as investors and they were treating all their income as short-term capital gains or long-term capital gains. And the IRS said, no, this is an active trader business. Everything you've been doing is active income to you. And because it was an LLC set up as a partnership, you're treated as sole proprietor. So you have to go back and pay employment taxes on all of the money you pay. Yeah, those installment sales, wiped them all out. That was all income in the year in which they sold the property, even though they hadn't received the money. And so that's just an example of not understanding what it is the client is engaging in, what type of activity, and then selecting the appropriate entity. And the other problem you see a lot of is what I call entity mills that set up these businesses in Wyoming or Nevada. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And granted, we do some of that. I mean, we set up Nevada entities as well in Wyoming, but... The problem is, is understanding, is it appropriate for the client? If you're buying and selling property in California, for instance, a Nevada entity makes no sense. All it's going to do is increase your costs of doing business. And and so you have to understand where the investing is taking place and what is the best type of entity for that, where it should be filed. And so, yeah, sometimes Nevada and Wyoming makes a lot of sense. And other times, there's no point in doing it. The only person that benefits is the attorney that's setting it up. Right, right. Yeah, I remember years ago, Nevada, I I would get emails all the time from companies in Nevada that would say, you know, set up your entity here, here are the benefits, it's very inexpensive, it's business friendly, and I'm sure a lot of that was was true, but 
I guess you have to understand what you're doing as an investor to know what to set up, where to set it up, how it needs to be structured. It's a lot more complicated than I think a lot of these mills, as you call them, set them out to be. Well, correct. I mean, you look on the internet, um, there's a lot of websites that talk about asset protection and they try to make it seem simple. You know, just set this one entity up here and you'll be taken care of. And the thing is, is that these types of plans, they work. They always work just fine for people until they're tested. And I often explain that to people. They say, well, I have a great operating agreement. My LLC was set up through Legal Doom." And I said, well, I know you think it's great, but wait till you're in court or you're involved in an audit. That's when you're going to find out how good your documents are. Yeah. And, you know, our clients have been there and they've withstood audits and they've withstood attacks by, you know, large corp corporate banks that have come after our clients for millions of dollars on deficiency judgments and they can't collect because of the way we structure them. Right. Yeah, that's great. Well, there's a lot of options out there. There's C-corporations, S-corporations, limited partnerships, LLCs, and whatever else. Now, series LLCs. So as a real estate investor, how do you even know where to begin? What's the best type of entity? What states make sense? I, I know you probably focus on certain states, as many companies and attorneys do. And clearly, you know, if you, you read articles and you listen to so-called quote-unquote gurus and a lot of them do talk about three states in particular i hear a lot about nevada i hear a lot about delaware especially delaware um and then more recently wyoming has been kind of a, a new favorite among real estate investors so what is a real estate investor supposed to do i mean what what kind of options should they be looking at how do they go about doing this well first off you want to look at where are you investing for instance if I'm a real estate investor and I'm investing in Georgia, there really isn't any benefit for me to set up a Nevada or Wyoming LLC and then try to own my Georgia real estate inside of that LLC because in order to do so, that LLC would have to register to do business in Georgia. So now you have a state filing. Let's say we'll use a Nevada, for example. You got to pay Nevada and you have to pay Georgia. Now, Many of the benefits that you brought up about what people talk about on the internet, what they don't tell you is that once you take that LLC out of Nevada and you register in, in Georgia to conduct business, all the benefits of Nevada drop off. And now you fall under Georgia's jurisdiction when it comes to how that LLC is going to be in, in, interpreted under their laws. And there's been a number of cases where this has occurred, where people thought, well, it was a Delaware LLC I set up. And even though I'm doing business in Utah, Delaware law applies. And the courts say you're wrong. It doesn't apply. You know, it's the home, it's the state jurisdiction where you're operating. So what I would typically, the way I work with a client is we first look at where they own property and then we will set up LLCs in those states where the real estate is located and possibly incorporate a land trust if we were dealing with property that has debt on it. Mm -hmm. And then we might take those particular LLCs and have them all held by one either Nevada or Wyoming limited liability company as, as a holding LLC. So that LLC does not conduct business in any other state, and its sole purpose is to consolidate all of your business interests. So where you use a Nevada or Wyoming LLCs, when you have all those Georgia companies, you have them all owned by that one entity. So the Nevada or Wyoming is not actually doing business in any other state. 
So this serves as a buffer. So should you be involved in a lawsuit and somebody wants to come and take your interest, uh, it makes it extremely difficult for them because the laws in Nevada and Wyoming are very favorable to business owners. So you have what are called the charging order protections in those states that are really strong. So nobody could get after your Wyoming LLC or your Nevada LLC, which in turn then protects all of your Georgia LLCs from outside attack. But even more so, what this this type of structure provides you is asset consolidation, that that, that out-of-state entity is consolidating all of your LLCs down into one holding company. And by doing so, you don't have to file tax returns for all of those in-state Georgia LLCs. I mean, I have clients that have 15 LLCs all held by one Nevada limited liability company, right. and they only have to file one tax return. I mean, you can tell when a CPA sets up a structure because all 15 LLCs are filing tax right. returns. Yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, I look at it and I sit down with the client and I say, you know what, I can save you a ton of money just by creating this one additional structure, plus you get extra asset protection. But even more to my point is, you know, when you create a lot of LLCs and you're filing all these tax returns, that's all showing up on your 1040. And the more K-1s that appear on your 1040, the greater the likelihood is the underwriter is going to give you headaches trying to figure out where your income's coming from, how the money flows, what are the expenses. So simplify it. Put them all into one entity that therefore you only have one K-1 on your tax return rather than multiple K-1s. And so that's another benefit of that type of structure. And I also think it protects you from the IRS because the IRS has targeted real estate investors and people who submit Schedule E's with a lot of real estate on them. You're just asking for an audit. And by putting it through a partnership entity, like I just described, you're reducing that risk. So in your scenario, you're saying that the one holding entity issues a K-1 to you for your tax returns every year and all the other LLCs owned by that one holding LLC it generates just one tax return every year, but the LLCs that it holds doesn't have to file a tax return. Correct, because they're all single member entities, so they don't have to file any returns. Can that holding company be an S corp or does it have to be an LLC? Well, no, yeah, it would have to be an LLC because if you st structured it as an S corp, you're gonna tie your hands as far as taxes if you try to remove any of the assets um, without selling them. So you never wanna have an S corp involved unless you're dealing with flipping property. That's a good segue to another question because a lot of investors do both. They're buying, rehabbing, flipping properties, which is a transactional business. It's an active form of investing. And then they also have a portfolio of investment properties where they're going to buy, hold, and put that into an LLC or whatever the case may be. I would assume that you're going to say have a separate company set up for that flipping business. Absolutely. I would set up a C corporation. I'm not a big fan of S corps. I know people talk about the S corp as being favorable for flow through treatment, so you don't have to pay employment taxes on the income that comes down to you. But again, it goes back to the fact that I'm a real estate investor and I know what underwriters look at. When you have an S corporation, that's another K-1 that flows onto your return. So you have to provide them copies of the S corporation's tax returns, balance statements, profit and loss. I mean, if you're running your business at a loss for tax purposes, but it's still making money for you, of course, because you can run businesses that way, that doesn't look good to an underwriter to obtain a loan because they don't understand how S corporations work or how flow-through entities uh, affect your return. So if you set it up in a C corporation, and you pay yourself a salary, now you're giving the underwriter 
exactly what they want to see, which is a W-2. The bigger, fatter W-2 you provide an underwriter, the more attractive you look as a borrower. Mm -hmm. And they don't see that the C corporation is there because it doesn't show up on your tax return. So it's a lot about, you know, protecting your, your 1040 so it gives or increases your ability to borrow. And it also gives you income shifting opportunities where let's say your spouse, um, you're looking to buy 10 properties in your name and 10 properties in your wife's name. Well, if she doesn't work, here's now your corporation. You can start employing her and then shifting income and giving her a W-2. Right. And it opens up possibilities for pension plan contributions. So now you can invest through your pension plan because it's a self-trustee plan. So there's so many different things you can do out of that one entity. A lot of investors get hung up on this question, how many entities do I need? And you'll have investors and gurus and attorneys out there saying, have one LLC per property on one end of the spectrum. And then you'll have others saying you should have five or 10 that you put into one LLC. And then you have kind of a hybrid where they're going to say, well, figure out how much your risk tolerance is. And if it's 500000 in equity or $100,000 worth of equity, put that much property into one LLC, then start a new LLC and start putting properties into that. I don't know if there's a right answer to this, but what's your opinion on that? There isn't a right answer. You know, I'm, I'm the, I take the hybrid approach where I, when I sit down with a client, what I will do is evaluate the number of doors and then start dividing up properties accordingly based upon what their risk tolerance is, looking at the equity in the property. But I will ask them, you know, as well, you know, do these properties pose, do you think, any additional risk to you? Maybe the neighborhoods they're in, the types of tenants you have there, uh, the property's condition in general. If they are, maybe we'll segregate those out. Commercial properties or apartment buildings are always going to go in their own entity. You'll never mix those with residential. So it's really up to the client through determining what fits best with their investing style. You know, uh, I've had clients that I've recommended uh, that they create, let's say, five LLCs and put three properties per LLC. And, and one individual I'm thinking of right now, after um, I met with him, came back to the office, he called me up and he said, you know, Clint, I want one LLC per property. And I tried to talk him out of it. I said, that's going to be 15 filings. That's going to be expensive. And he said, I don't care. That's just where I feel most comfortable. And his kid's an attorney, and he told his son what he was doing. And the son said, no, Dad, you just got sold by an attorney <laughs> on stuff you don't need. And he goes, no, 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 I had to sell him on the, uh, the concept. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I'm going to throw you a softball question here. All right. How important is anonymity? I think it's really important. Um, I was taught anonymity at an early age by my father. You know, anonymity is about not letting the people know what you have. So they can't look at you and then uh, determine whether or not you're an attractive target. When we would get up in the morning, uh, say typically my father would get us out of bed at 6 a.m. and uh, tell us to get ready, come out for breakfast, and then we're heading off to one of his properties or the apartment building to do work. If my, my brother and I, if we came out wearing uh, you know, a pair of jeans and tennis shoes and a, and a shirt, my dad might look at us and say, go change. And my mom would look at me and say, you guys need to go change. But the difference was is that they each wanted us to change for, for opposite reasons. My mom didn't want us to ruin our, our good shoes or our good jeans by going to work with my father because she knows we always come back and that everything would be destroyed. <laughs> Whereas my dad would look at it and say, I don't want to create the impression of my tenants that I make any money. And so I want you to wear the beat-up stuff to the apartment buildings because I want them to think that we're barely getting by. And I, you know, I tend to agree with that philosophy is that you 
don't need to tell show people what you have what you have and that if you can create a structure that hides your ownership and make it on a need to know rather than a need to show basis then i think you're better off because a lot of lawsuits uh, start with an attorney investigating somebody, just seeing whether or not they're worth suing. Those are the personal injury type cases that are brought out there. Yeah. And if they find out, like I'm dealing with a client in California right now, and their tragic story, uh, a guy owns a nightclub, two patrons come out, and a car that was given to a different patron accelerates and pins these two guys up against a wall. One of them loses both legs, and the other one loses one leg. So the attorneys have sued the nightclub owner, and then they settled with him. They sued another individual, the uh, valet company, settled with them. Now they're going after the property owner, the guy who leased the building to the nightclub. Wow. All he is, he's just leasing them. You know why they're going after him? Because they know how much he owns, because all of the assets are in his name, and they're unwilling to settle wow. with him because they know he has deep pockets. Wow. Yeah, you yeah. don't want a target on your back, that's for sure. Correct. Yeah. And that's why I think anonymity is really important. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I remember in 2004 when I was buying some property in uh, the crazy city of Detroit, you know, whenever I was there, I would put on exactly what you said, you know, your worst pair of jeans, runners, I'd take my wedding ring off and put it in my pocket. You know, there was nothing flashy. It was just very basic. You want to just be under the radar. So I agree. And anonymity is very important. You must have a fancy wedding ring. Well, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you just never know. Yeah. So yeah, asset protection is like the layers of an onion. That's kind of the analogy I use. You know, you keep putting on layers, trusts, insurance, this and that. So, you know, you can build it up to be somewhat complex if you wanted it to, which brings up the question of insurance. You know, clearly you want insurance, but the question is how much insurance should someone have? And then of course, you know, there's strategies where you want property insurance and maybe liability insurance on a property on each of your properties. And then on top of that, you want the next layer of that onion putting an umbrella insurance policy that is more of a backstop. What do you think of that? What's your strategy when it comes to insurance? I think, you know, you need to insure. If you don't insure, then you're defeating all the asset protection structures you put into place because you always have to insure against your foreseeable or reasonable risk of loss. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want to lose my assets. If a house burns down and you don't have insurance, you know, you're out of your, your house. You've lost your investment. So I think that, you know, provide yourself reasonable insurance. What you're going to run into, though, when you use business entities is sometimes it's hard to find insurers out there that are willing to offer, like you said, an umbrella policy mm -hmm. uh, for an LLC. So you have to look to... Uh, or, you know, just shop it around, deal with different uh, insurance companies, because not all of them are the same. Some of them will do it. And it's funny is that even in certain states, like in some states, um, I, will, I work with a particular insurance company, I can uh, insure multiple properties, and the other ones, they won't allow me to do it. They only give me one uh, policy per property per LLC. So it's just, hmm. it's pretty difficult. Um, you know, there's a, I don't know if you've run into the, that, that insurance group that insures real estate investors. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, no. There's one called National Real Estate Insurance. Oh, I've heard of them. Yes. I've seen their ads too. Yeah. 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 So what I understand from talking to them is that they work specifically with real estate investors and I've never shopped their prices, but it's just an idea is that you need to find out your different options. You need to carry insurance. And I think it's important to have it. You do need insurance. Do you think an umbrella policy is taking it too far, or is it just a matter of personal preference and comfort level? 
personal preference and comfort level. I carry an umbrella policy. You know, it's cheap. If if I can get an umbrella policy for a couple enter a couple extra hundred dollars a year, you know, I'm picking one up. Yeah. I don't want to run too long, but do you want to comment on land trusts? Maybe define what that is. Yeah, yeah. So for a lot of real estate investors, this is something that um, they're they're not that exposed to unless they've come on calls like this or listened to podcasts like this or done research on their own. Because if they go to a local attorney who's never been exposed to it, they're often told they don't work here or, or I don't know what you're talking about. That's right. So, and it's just a matter of education. It's like when you go to law school, it's not something that's covered. And there's only a handful of states that have actually have land trust statutes. So it stands to reason if you went to an attorney and said, hey, I want to know about land trust. Uh, I'm going to pay you $10,000 to research them. You'll probably get a different answer because land trust exists in all 50 states. And I've got cases to back it up. And whenever a client tells me their attorney has told them that they don't work, I'll send them the case sites and let the attorney do the research on their own. Um, as a real estate investor, I think they should be utilized in cases where you have property that's encumbered because you don't want the bank to find out you've put it into an LLC. It's a great title holding vehicle for that purpose. You can move it into the LLC without alerting banks to the fact there's been a property transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's great for states where you have uh, transfer taxes if you dump it into an LLC directly. So you first put it into the land trust, then you move the land trust into the LLC. So you get your asset protection, and again, you're not triggering any taxes. And you know another benefit is anonymity of ownership is that no one knows where that beneficial interest resides until a lawsuit develops, and so that can also benefit you. So I'm a I'm a proponent of land trust because I see many uses for this particular type of entity. Now, can it be abused? Yes, it can, but in many cases, uh, it does protect people. And if you own the property outright and you want anonymity, I mean, there's no better way than using a land trust with a, a trustee who, with whom you trust to serve as your initial trustee and then have them resign. So if somebody pulls title, your name isn't even associated with the property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like land trusts. I've used them myself in the past. They're not that difficult to work with or understand, but yet, you know, it adds another layer to that onion of protection. So. I think it makes a lot of sense for buy and hold property, especially if it's something that you want to transfer title to family members down the road. Um, you know, it adds that simplicity. Correct. You know, even like HUD owned properties, you know, people that like to wholesale. I mean, the, if you're tying a property up, best way to do it, in my opinion, is set up a land trust, tie it up, and then flip the land trust to somebody and let them close on it. Yeah. And then the land trust is owned by the LLC. Correct. Yeah. Um, is there anything I didn't ask you that? Maybe I should have asked you or anything else you want to add. Um, you know, I just want to add that you, you asset protection for real estate investors, it, it's something that it can be complicated at first, but, you know, keep your plans as simple as possible when you, when you structure them. Because at the end of the day, you want to make sure you have a plan that's workable, not only for you, that you're able to, to manage it, but it's also, you know, workable uh, when dealing with third parties, that it's not going to create problems for you. And um, don't fall victim to a lot of that internet advertising out there that, you know, tries to encourage you to set up businesses in particular states that may not be a particular benefit to you. And um, last but not least is that, you know, your documents do matter. I get this a lot. People tell me, well, I set this up and, you know, I paid $75 for this operating agreement. I think it's sufficient. I don't need to do anything more than this. And it's not that I'm trying to make a plug, you know, for our office. Well, actually, I am. But uh, documents do matter. And you'll find out how important they are when you're involved in your, your first lawsuit. Absolutely. Because, yeah, if you don't know what's in your documents or what's missing, 
that's what somebody else is going to point out to you, and you don't want to be in that situation. Is that what they refer to as uh, piercing the corporate veil? Yeah, piercing the corporate veil is is uh, one way to it could be referred to. Um, most what I see a lot of times is that people create documents that you know will require that all the cash flows to be distributed annually. And you know the question is why would you want that in your docs? So you can make that decision on an annual basis. You don't have to have documents telling you to distribute money because if somebody sued you and they have a charger on your LLC, you'd have to give all that money over to your creditor. So the point is this. You want to make sure you have good docs. The docs match the tax selection you've made. They're set up properly, you know, member manage versus manager manage. And at the end of the day, you know, if you've, if you've done it right and you've followed the rules, then if something does happen, which we hope it doesn't, you're not at risk of losing everything. You know, I was going to ask you earlier, and you mentioned it again, I guess for the sake of our listeners, a lot of people probably don't know what a charging order is. It applies to LLCs, but maybe you can just define that here. A charging order is um, basically a lien on your interest, where somebody sues you. In certain states, if they get a judgment against you, they can take your LLC from you. So you want to make sure that you do not have an LLC, which you own, in a state that permits a creditor foreclose, like in California uh, or Colorado or Florida. If I, if I sued you, I get a judgment against you, and you have one, an LLC set up in that state, I could take your interest in satisfaction of the judgment. But if you own an interest in an LLC, let's say in Nevada, Wyoming, Texas, Arizona, uh, the laws of those states state that a creditor cannot take your interest from you. They can't force you to take distributions. They have to wait. And the only time they get paid is if you distribute out any money. Of course, you're not going to do that if it's going to go to your creditor. So what that gives you is a lot of control and the ability to bargain that judgment down to a more reasonable amount. Or they choose not to even pursue you, which has been my experience in dealing with lawsuits with my clients that once the creditor finds out how they're structured, they choose not to pursue what they're entitled to and often come back to the table with an extremely lowball settlement offer. And my clients are more than happy to take it. Yeah. And that's a powerful deterrent. It is. Yeah, that's great. So offline, you mentioned a program that you have coming up. Maybe you could take 30 seconds and just tell our listeners what you have, because I think a lot of people might be interested in that. Yeah, well, I was sitting down and I was talking to my business partners and I said, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have questions uh, about asset protection, tax planning for real estate investing. And how do you effectively answer those questions? Email, sometimes things get lost in translation. I have people, you know, sending me questions all the time. So I decided to, to create a program. It's called Clint's Office Hours, and it's going to be on Monday morning at 8 a.m. And for an hour each Monday going forward, it's going to start in a couple weeks here, uh, I'm basically going to have an open line. You can call in. It's going to be a conference line. You call in. If you have any questions, I'll be there answering questions for people, and we'll be recording it as well so we can uh, people can have access to it later on. But the idea is to educate. Uh, real estate investors on what they should or should not be doing when it comes to asset protection and tax planning. And if they want to find out exactly when it starts, you can just easily go to my website, uh, clintcoons.com, just my name.com, and I'll have it displayed there. But you know, if, by going to that website, you'll also get, you'll be able to link to my blog as well if you want to read more about various aspects of asset protection and tax planning for real estate investments. And you have a great book out too. It's uh, Asset Protection for Real Estate Investors. That's available on Amazon. It is. What a creative title, right? Yeah, I love the title. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> 
Well, tell our listeners how they can find you and your book and where they can get a hold of you. Okay. Well, you can find my book on Amazon if, if you just look for my name and asset protection for real estate investors. If you want to contact me, you can do so by emailing me at first initial last name, ccoons at andersonadvisors.com. Uh, you can go to my website, clintcoons.com, and you can uh, contact me through there. It has all my relevant contact information. Or you can call in at 800-706-4741, and you can, again, reach me through the telephone. So very accessible. Um, yep. Find me many different ways. Yep, great. And I'll put that information in the show notes as well. Perfect. Great. Well, thanks again for your time, Clint. Have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. That wraps it up for this episode. Remember to download our free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. It is available free on both our websites, PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com and our main property website, NoradaRealEstate.com. Please remember to subscribe if you haven't done so already. It's easy to do in iTunes and Stitcher Radio. There's also an RSS feed on our website. Please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Those reviews really help us spread the word. And we're still giving away a $100 Amazon gift card randomly every week for the next few weeks. So please give us a hand in spreading the word. We appreciate the comments so far. They've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for those comments. It really helps keep me motivated. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for, for distribution or publication rights and media interviews. Please contact the host.